This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everybody. My name is Benjamin Day. And I am Jillian Mason. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. Did you see I added hand gestures this, this week? I thought that was great. Yeah, it's not going to be much help for the listeners on the audio version, but for I those think of they you, can really feel the energy, the swoop. <laughs> as an Italian, I'm just proud of you that you're learning how to talk with your hands. Totally, totally. I'm applying for honorary status. <laughs> so, Jillian, starting this May 11th, which is just a few months from now, uh, mm. President Biden is ending the emergency COVID regulations that have basically been in place since the start of the pandemic back at the very beginning of 2020. These regulations created almost kind of a Medicare for all type system for vaccines, testing and COVID related care. It was like a little glimpse into what healthcare could look like for Americans. And, you know, today, obviously, the pandemic is still raging, unfortunately. And the end of these official public health emergency uh, measures means that access to COVID prevention care is suddenly going to become kind of like every other form of treatment in the U.S., um, <laughs> which basically means like whatever you can get through the private market. Good luck, everyone. It also means prices going way up. It means highly inequitable access and just like millions of us falling through the cracks. And in addition, the public health emergency, uh, not everyone may be aware of this, had some crucially important protections for Medicaid enrollees. Millions of whom are going to start getting kicked off of their insurance starting in April of this year, which I think is the biggest, nastiest, most dangerous impact of getting rid of these regulations. So, you know, just start bracing yourself for a major healthcare catastrophe. I feel like every episode is is a healthcare catastrophe, but Oh my god. Okay, but you're such a Debbie Downer here. The coronavirus is over. That's the headline, right? This is great news. Right. I totally. Right? Yes. Joe Biden said it. Republicans have been saying it for months now, so it must be true. Well, here's a, a cold, hard, factual data answer to that, Jillian. Thank you. There are still an average of over 40,000 new COVID cases per week. There is still an average of over 3,600 hospital admissions per week for COVID and still an average of 453 deaths per day. So things are growing swimmingly. And that is, it's, we're not just like down to flu levels. That is way, way worse than the flu. The government tracks like everyone who has either the pneumonia or the flu or COVID and who dies from one of those issues. And of the like over 2000 cases just in the last week before we record the show, almost a thousand of them were COVID related. So still COVID really winning over the, the COVID V pneumonia head to head battle. And God, I, I don't know why you put this Harvard professor in here. You know I'm from Boston. You shouldn't make me say out loud <laughs> any words from a Harvard professor, but he is an epidemiologist. Maybe they're not that bad. This is William Hanage. He said, quote, it's beyond question that society has moved into a stage where the pandemic is for most of us, if not over, then certainly quiet. That's a great thing. Long may it remain so. But he says, is it the case that there is no preventable suffering? No, there is still preventable suffering and death. 
So mm -hmm. that is oh, where we are. Way, speaking of preventable suffering, shout yes. out to my friend Sandra, who mm -hmm. is at home with COVID right now. I oh. hope you were listening to this podcast and um, hopefully we'll illuminate just how over COVID is for you. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say, speaking of preventable suffering, we're so sorry to you, our dear listeners. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, you love you love this this podcast. So, Julian, I'm going to kick it over to you now. Obviously, COVID is still a major, major health crisis, still a major health concern nationally. Why would our dear Uncle Joe end the measures the government is taking to curb the spread of COVID? And isn't he supposed to be looking out for us, Julian? Creepy Uncle Joe. Creepy Uncle Joe. Yeah, if you're a lady, he's like looking over your shoulder. Uh -huh. A little touch on the... And like maybe uh, smelling your hair a little bit. Oh. Like kind of guy who like smells yeah. your hair a little bit. I think he does that. It's a, it's a type for sure. But okay, so there's been a little bit of a, a, a political kerfuffle about this. So, all right, just to set the stage here, like Republicans have wanted to end the pandemic since the very beginning, right? Because it was like super inconvenient for them. No, no other reason. And so, I mean, which is really funny to me because like, actually, like they've still managed all of the people who they, who support them have still managed to make a shit ton of money in this pandemic. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure that they like, I don't know that big pharma needed their help in this case, but regardless. So basically, you know, the Republicans wanted to end this pandemic forever. And then on January 30th, right, which was a Monday, Joe Biden actually announced that he would be ending the public health emergency. Mm -hmm. He basically wants to wind things down. Down. This is the rhetoric. Wind it down. That being like said, winding down health insurance coverage for millions of people. It's uh, yeah. It sounds like a gentle process. <laughs> yeah, winding down. That's what you say. Like you know, oh, the you know the holidays were really busy today, busy this year. But it's They're it's winding, winding down. down yeah. You know, mm -hmm. so basically. On on a Monday, right, Joe Biden says he's going to end the public health emergency in May, right? And on Tuesday, the Republican-led House <laughs> votes to end the COVID emergency immediately. Ah, um, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> literally the very next day. Mm -hmm. And and they know they have no chance of passing this, right? So and then they don't. I don't think they even intend to win this fight. And, and in fact, you know, members of the delegate of the Republican delegation were like, oh, we're just trying to send a message that the administration needed to be more detailed about their plans for the wind down. The great thing about a split Congress is that basically everything is theater. It's like political yeah. theater. <laughs> it just seems to be like a very funny way to try to send that particular message mm -hmm. by being like, don't plan, just do it. Anyway, you know, the, the thing is that it's not just the Republicans who want the pandemic to be over, right? The, the Democratic leadership also, mm -hmm. right? Obviously, Joe Biden's coming up with a plan for winding down. And Jim McGovern said something that I think is like pretty much emblematic of how Democrats are feeling about this, right? There's a right way to wind down. Make sure that there are, that vulnerable there aren't vulnerable people that would be impacted. And then he said this Republican effort isn't a serious effort. This is about messaging. Which I guess everyone agrees on. Everybody was mm. just trying to send a message. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like, uh, just in general here, right, this is a lot of political rhetoric, like you said, right? It's, it's all just theater. And basically, you know, you can think about it. People want the pandemic to be over, right? And politicians in both parties know that, right? So they're racing, really, to be the, the first to end the pandemic. 
I think it should be noted, though, that when most people say that they want to end the pandemic, they don't actually mean they mean like stop people from dying. Right. right. They don't they don't mean the government should stop giving a shit. Right. About it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, that's, I think, the ultimate reason why uh, the pandemic is quote-unquote ending. It's nothing to do with public health and um, everything to do with political comfort. Right. What's really ending is your public support and safety net for not getting COVID or being treated if you do get COVID. Hell yeah. And we're ending the COVID health system. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. So let's let's dig a little deeper into this, Ben. Let's talk a little bit about what these emergency regulations were and what are the actual like real life person consequences of ending them in in May. As yeah. I'm I'm a little I'm a little ashamed of uh Rep Jim McGovern, our very own here from Massachusetts, who actually mm -hmm. a very good Medicare for all champion. He says there's a right way to wind down, again, using this terminology, make sure that there aren't vulnerable people that would be impacted. But this is very clearly going to impact vulnerable people, uh, this winding down process. It turns out uh, the, the more that we've sort of dug into this, the more we've learned exactly how important these COVID emergency regulations were, not just for COVID care and prevention, but kind of across the whole healthcare system. And surprisingly, it was actually also impacting our immigration system, which we're going to talk about a little bit at the very end here. But I want to start with kind of the single most important thing that's going to happen with the end of these emergency regulations. Uh, an estimated 15 million people are going to get kicked off of Medicaid in starting in April. Mm. Now, 15 million people, that's about 4.5% of the entire population of the United States, which is just a whole lot of people. And do you want to tell me that that's making sure that vulnerable people aren't going to be impacted? I mean, I, I was going to say, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> would you would you define people who are on Medicaid as being in a vulnerable position? Because I would think, yes. Maybe this is why they're doing it in 2023 and not 2024 in election year. Mm, because I, mm, I think mm. there's going to be a much more massive backlash against this, especially once it starts happening. I, I don't think people fully understand the scope of what this is going to do to people. Yeah. But so why is this happening? Why? How is it that 15 million people are getting kicked off of Medicaid? Well, it turns out that when COVID struck, one of these emergency regulations was that the federal government basically banned states from kicking people off of Medicaid. Normally, when you're on Medicaid, you qualify because of your income or because you're low income enough or you're low income plus something else like you're low income plus pregnant or you're low income plus you have a certain disability or something like that. Um, so they're always checking if are you still eligible? Are you still eligible? Are you still eligible? And you have to keep proving it over and over again. And so there's just massive churning. People get kicked off of Medicaid all the time, even when they are eligible, often because like maybe you you move, you change address, they send like a letter to your old house to like finish your redetermination process. You don't get the letter and then you get churned out of Medicaid and you're uninsured. Oh God, that's so fucked up. <laughs> yeah. So basically they they acknowledge we can't have that happening especially for low-income people who are most likely to get COVID during this pandemic. We can't have people just getting kicked off of their insurance all the time and having to try and hop back on again. So maybe your income goes up a tiny bit and you hit over the threshold and you can't qualify for Medicaid anymore. That's another way you can lose it. So anyway, they stopped all of that shit during the pandemic. And they said, states, you are no longer allowed to re do these redetermination tests. If someone's on Medicaid, you can just keep them on there. And then the federal government was also paying the states extra money 
for the additional costs that they were going to occur for covering all these these new people. And that is going to end, you know, a lot of these regulations are going to end starting in March, uh, or no, we said May, and it's it's in April that the these Medicaid redeterminations can restart again. Mm. So it's it's not going to happen all at once. It's not like 15 million people are going to fall off the rolls immediately, mm. but it's going to start happening in April, gradually millions and millions of people over the, the coming months. Now I want to talk about one other thing. You know, we Medicaid obviously a huge program. There's also an impact on Medicare. I feel like we now spend 90% of our podcast attacking Medicare Advantage plans and how <laughs> messed up they are. These Accurate. Are, these are the privatized, you know, for-profit Medicare plans um, that many people are enrolled. About half of Medicare enrollees. Well, one of the big problems with Medicare Advantage, as you know, Jillian, is they almost all of them have limited networks. Some of them have like extreme limited networks. Mm-hmm. We were getting stories from people who like couldn't get care without like driving two hours through the mountains. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, I think there was another acknowledgement. When it comes to COVID, it's like clearly none of our healthcare system worked. So they, <laughs> they were saying uh, Medicare Advantage plans, if you were getting treated for COVID, whether that was, you know, testing or prevention or whether that was you'd been diagnosed and you're getting treated afterwards for COVID care, Medicare Advantage plans could not have in-network in and out-network for that, for COVID care. Everyone, every provider had to be treated as in-network and they couldn't charge you additionally for that. Guess what? That all is going to disappear now in May. And uh, if you end up getting treated for COVID at the wrong place, maybe it's kind of urgent and you go to a hospital near you that's out of network, suddenly you could be facing a massive, massive bill for COVID care that wouldn't have been possible before. Hmm. So, uh, Jillian, I wanted to ask you, those are like the big public insurance plan impacts. But what about just like uh, access to COVID tests, Mm. COVID Mm -hmm. vaccines, and treatment once you get COVID? This is the stuff that was really dramatically changed by emergency regulations. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but I really loved that moment when they were like, you can write to the government and they will send you a COVID test or four COVID tests or whatever. Like, I was like, how often do you get to do that? How often do you get to write to the government and then they actually send you a thing that you need? We should brainstorm other things that could be sent to us. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, sadly, in May, you're not going to be able to order those free at-home tests anymore. Mm -hmm. And Medicare isn't going to be covering them. And private insurers, if they want to decide to cover that, will. I'm sure that'll happen. I'm sure that'll happen. The goodness of their hearts. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, I think we've all found out, right, the home tests are surprisingly expensive. And that's going to be a brand new out-of-pocket cost for almost everyone now. If you do get a COVID test from a provider, like at a doctor's office or a hospital, um, it is going to be covered by your insurance if you have insurance. But insurers might actually just start to charge a copay for these tests or they could even limit the number of tests they can pay for year per oh, year. That sounds right? familiar. That's like mm. physical therapy or you know anything else, basically. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, mental health care is my first thought. Mental health, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh well, but so yeah, basically, so uninsured people are going to face the exact same disincentive to seek care when they get COVID as they do with any other illness and injury, right? right. right? Mm. Because and uninsured people are going to be super duper screwed because they're most likely going to have to pay the full cost of the test and the doctor or hospital visit. So pretty, pretty bad. But once you get COVID, right, what happens then? That's the the next question. 
Yeah, well, the theme here is like, you know, we we have a cheeky title for this episode, which is the, this little pandemic went to market. And it it's basically like COVID care is, for the most part, just being dumped into every other category of care. It's not being treated that differently anymore. So if you come down with COVID and need to be treated, it's going to be like basically every other illness. Uh, if you have insurance, you will likely face copays for your treatment. The only good thing that may remain on the table is if you need access to a drug like, you know, like Paxlovid, for example, if that drug is purchased by the federal government, which it mostly is, that drug will still be free and you can still access it, uh, whether you have insurance or not, regardless of who you are. But if you're uninsured and you don't have any, other, you don't have any coverage for COVID related care, that's kind of small comfort, right? It's like you, you have to pay the full price of your doctor visit or your hospital visit. And then if they prescribe you uh, Paxlovid, then your prescription will be free, but everything else you're going to have mm. to pay for out of pocket. For the vaccines, there's actually not going to be that much of a change. And this is another silver lining because again, the vaccines yeah. are mostly purchased by the federal government. They buy them in massive bulk from prescription drug companies. And then they, again, distribute them free of costs. doesn't matter if you're insured or uninsured, you can still qualify for the vaccine. So that's one silver lining in all this, but there is a dark underlining to the silver overlining, <laughs> <laughs> which is nice. that we we know that Moderna and Pfizer, all the the vaccine pharmaceutical manufacturers, are massively going to jack up their prices for these vaccines. I think they were charging uh, something around twenty dollars per dose early on, and again, they're mostly selling these to the federal government. But now they're going to be jacking that price up to, you know, $80, $100, $120 a dose. So you're talking about 500 to 700% increases in their pricing. Obviously, they don't need that massive price increase to make massive profits off of this. Oh, my God. They've already made so much fucking money uh, off of exactly, us. Exactly. They oh. are doing fine. And potentially that could create a budgetary challenge for the federal government to keep supplying free vaccines for the country. Right now, it looks like we are okay in terms of federal vaccine supply, but we haven't seen the price hikes go into effect quite yet. Um, and it's going to be the same thing for, um, for private insurers who are buying uh, vaccines if they buy them directly from, mm -hmm. from the pharmaceutical companies. They're going to have to go negotiate those costs, each one of them separately. Um, so and, God um... knows what that cost will be. Shout out to Bernie, though, who mm. has been taking action on this and has been trying to, you know, galvanize his colleagues to take some kind mm -hmm. of action on Moderna and Pfizer to get them to play nice. Um, he is now chairing the health committee. So mm -hmm. I think we'll see some interesting things around this. All right. So, Jillian, I wanted to ask you about the one weird silver lining to the end of these emergency regulations having to do not really in, in any meaningful way directly with healthcare. But having to do with immigration in the United States. What is up with this? I didn't see this one coming, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. So this is like the weirdest shit. This is when we enter bizarro world. So, all right. So part of this public health emergency declaration back a few years ago was something that was called Title 42, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a Trump policy. And it's basically just how Trump used the pandemic as an excuse to close the Southern border. Right. Right? Yes, I remember this. <laughs> right. Which like, you know, again, kind of makes sense, right? Because, you know, he's a fucking bigot and he doesn't like immigrants. So, of course, his wall wasn't his... working. <laughs> it turns it out that the wall, the wall was COVID permeable. Right. Um, 
And so he should have built it out of KN9295 masks or whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, so Trump passes this, this Title 42 thing, right? Mm. And it's it was introduced in March 2020. And, and since then, right, it's been used to expel migrants, including a lot of asylum seekers, right? And it's been used about 2.5 million times. So that's like 2.5 million people who mm -hmm. have been denied entrance to this country, uh, many of whom are people who are refugees from a war-torn country or from a country with an even worse COVID problem or from a country with a, you know, with a natural disaster or any number of things, right? Right. And who by international law, you basically have to give them a fair process anyway of determining whether they're you know, do asylum or not. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But, you know, Trump introduced this uh, Title 42 and that enabled him to just say, no dice, Southern border closed. So one of the nice things <laughs> is that this is actually going to the end of the public health emergency will end the Title 42. So right, it will nice. also end those... <laughs> really unjust regulations right, on right, immigration. Right. But the part about this that strikes me as so funny is that Biden was like, okay, we're going to end restrictions on immigration in May. And the Republicans responded the very next day by being like, no, end it tomorrow. Right. Um, <laughs> and so like, I think that this is actually like a nice moment, you know, it's like mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the GOP is getting really pro-immigrant, right? Um, they're like recognizing that migration is beautiful, that borders are just arbitrary constructions, and that immigrants are the lifeblood of our country. Um, and I think that that's why they immediately want to start letting those immigrants into the country. You have to appreciate when they accidentally do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> now we can all get back to our normal fucked up immigration system, <laughs> as opposed to the extraordinary yeah, COVID fucked up system. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. So it's, I guess it's a, it's a slight bright spot, but of course everything is still super fucked up, but in general, it, it, the consequences for most folks for this mm -hmm. end of the public health emergency are going to be pretty shitty, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess my, my general takeaway about this, you know, this experience of the kind of public health emergency regulations that we got for a couple of years here mostly for COVID care, but kind of affected also our big public insurance programs, like especially Medicaid. We were like, I don't know, I, we, we kind of almost had like a Medicare for all type system for COVID. It was like mm. Medicare for all with COVID. Um, <laughs> and and it, it did give you a little bit of a glimpse of like what Medicare for all for everything could look like. It definitely wasn't perfect the way they implemented it, but it was far better than you, you can imagine how bad COVID would have, how much worse COVID would have been without it. And it was so glaringly obvious that our healthcare system doesn't work when you actually need care. And, mm -hmm. and when poor people not getting care also impacts rich people with care, you know, suddenly they cared about poor people not getting care. Yeah, right. Like poor people have not gotten health care for a long time. But all right. of a sudden, when, you know, upper middle class people were like, there's no hospital bed for me, all of a right. sudden it became an issue. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And it's like, and the more that it spreads in the population, you know, it, it affects everyone. So, but, you know, we're now kind of going back to the, the market-based systems that we know don't work for COVID care, for everything else. We're dismantling the kind of improvements to Medicaid that were that allowed people to stay on Medicaid and actually have like continuous coverage instead of getting churned on and off and on and off again. Mm -hmm. So 
we are back to getting fucked, basically. Uh, long story short. But for folks who are interested in how we unfuck our healthcare system, which is what mm. we are in the business of doing at Healthcare Now, I did want to put in like a little pitch for our upcoming uh, annual conference, Jillian, um, mm. which is uh, this year we have a title. It's Everybody In, Racial Equity in Medicare for All. I think nothing was highlighted more by the pandemic, actually, than uh, the racial inequities at every stage, at like public health, population health, preventive care, healthcare, once you get sick, costs all, all down the line. So the conference is going to be, it's going to be all online. So anyone can participate anywhere in the country. Uh, it'll have a, an affordable anywhere registration world, fee. Ben. Hey, that's true. That's true. Why limit ourselves? Mm, and a vast it will be, international audience. Yeah. <laughs> it will be April 17th to 23rd. That sounds like a long period of time, like a whole week. Uh, but the way we do it is that it will actually be the, the weekend of April. The, the only live components where you're asked to interact with other people and sit in front of a computer um, at a certain time are going to be the, that weekend of April 22nd to 23rd. And in the week leading up to it, starting in April 17th, we have like mostly pre-recorded presentations and plenaries and stuff. You can watch them live if you're interested in it. But you can also just watch them whenever, you know, at, at your convenience. So whether you are, you know, experienced activists or just looking to learn, get involved for the first time, I really invite you to join us. I would say like, especially, right? Like, especially if you're just looking to learn and get involved for the first time, like, yeah, this could be really fucking cool for you. Yeah. And we've got a lot of like, skill, like one-on-one activist skills, one-on-one policy skills, like everything you need to get started uh, to just like get involved for the first time, you know? Basically, if you've been like fighting over Thanksgiving or holiday dinners with your family about this issue and you want to get better at it, right. come to the conference. <laughs> Uncle Bruce, you're going down. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to, I do want to thank our podcast team, of course. Our podcast Yay. manager is Angelique Davis. Our researcher for this episode is our intern, our fabulous intern, Pim Rajanaporn. And our show notes writer was Jerry Katz. Our audio editor was Arena Budanova. And do not forget to like this episode and subscribe mm -hmm. to the Medicare for All podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, this show is um, it's a project of the Healthcare Now Education Fund. And if you want to support our work, you can donate at our website, healthcare-now.org. So I'll talk to you all in two weeks. Bye-bye. Stay safe and stay dangerous. <laughs>